How's it going, everybody? Hello, and welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy McCullough, senior writer for, you guessed it, the Athletic. The Boston Red Sox have advanced to the American League Championship Series uh, after collecting three consecutive victories over the 100-win Tampa Bay Rays, which means that we have on two important guests today, our dynamic duo, covering the Red Sox. It's Chad Jennings and Jen McCaffrey. How are you guys doing? Tired, but good. (laughs) Yeah, same. No, we're doing all right. That's nice. We're just working a little bit later into the year than we thought we would be a few months ago. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I mean, maybe we can just start there, right? Like this team was in first place for a not insignificant portion of the season. They did look particularly good for not insignificant portion of the season. Can you just kind of take us through, I mean, maybe start with Jen, just like ups and downs of this, like when, when did it really start to crater and when did they kind of get it back together? Yeah, they were good for like that first really, you know, three months of the season or so. And honestly, and Alex Cora has talked about this, they started to dip, the offense started to kind of lose its way on a West coast trip, like the first week of July, um, right before the trade dead or right, right before the all-star break. And then, they had that that series right uh, against the Yankees right after the all-star break and it was uh just a really weird series that was a series that like a fan threw a ball at Alex Verdugo from the stands and that's and then they basically just started to slip out of first place from that point forward and it just started to look you know completely the opposite direction of what they had been doing in the first you know two and a half to three months of the season and slipping farther and farther out and you know they got a wild card spot are they even going to hold on to this wild card spot And then COVID hit for them. You know, they had like 13 guys that were tested positive, like three coaches and was like, okay, this is probably going to be the thing that, that does them in. And to their credit, um, and this is probably, you know, something we'll talk about at some point, but the depth and flexibility that Heim Bloom, you know, we kind of, um, uh, used that term ad nauseum over the winter and kind of maybe, uh, mocked it a little bit because it was talked about so much honestly, probably helped them through that stretch because they were bringing up these random guys nobody had heard of that were actually able to contribute um, and help them, you know, sustain themselves at least. I think they went eight and eight in that 16-game stretch where they were seemed like they were losing guys every day. And it was guys like, you know, Kike Hernandez and Xander Bogarts and Chris Sale. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't periphery guys. It was your main players. I think that being able to weather that storm galvanized this team. And yes, they had dips after that. They were swept by the Yankees at home like a week before the end of the regular season. But I think just throughout the season, they had all these come from behind wins. And it was like, I think they just sort of had this like weird internal belief, you know, that sounds stupid and cliche, but that they could kind of overcome these things that, that came, you know, came in front of them. Here they are having beaten the 100 win raise that everybody probably thought was going to go to the World Series. So, yeah, I guess I'll stop rambling, but like (laughs) it's just it's been such a weird uh, turn of events and so many ups and downs that um, I don't know. Do you agree, Chad? I don't know. What do you think? Am I I missing like uh, key parts there? Yeah, no, I mean, that's it. I mean, they they were I think we spent really the first three months sort of questioning how real all of this was, right? They, they were so good and they just kept winning and they kept winning with comebacks. And, you know, I don't know. It just, I think that the expectations, the bar was set so low in 2020 and, and expectations really weren't there going in. And it was almost like just when you started to think, oh, okay, they really are this good. Then all of a sudden like August hits and it was, they were not good anymore. And um, so it, 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 they, they, they've always been, I think throughout the year, they've shown when they're, when they're going, they're good. I mean, that's they, they can win a series like this against the Rays. Um, there's some ups and downs to them for sure. And then that stretch when they 
you know, literally half the roster got COVID. They were obviously kind of, a, they were much weaker, but they were kind of able to just weather that storm and get in. The other thing I think that happened is 2020 was so bad and they didn't have like a huge move this winter, right? They didn't, they didn't get a big name guy. I don't even know who you'd, Kike uh, Hernandez, is that the biggest acquisition they got? You know, it wasn't a yeah. big, it wasn't a big splashy winner. And I think that really hid the fact that they transformed a lot. I mean, they're, I, at one point I looked at, I think it was of their opening day roster this year. It was only like 11 guys who were on the roster most of last season. They had so many guys out last year, guys who were sick, guys who were hurt. They made enough changes to the roster. They, they had more turnover than it seemed. And I think that that sort of changed what our expectations were, right? It was like hard to immediately notice, oh, they, these guys did get a lot better because you, you, you want there to be that guy, like, here's sure. why they're better. And there's this move. And they just didn't have that. Instead, it was like Jen was saying, it was all these like depth moves and moves on the fringes. And together, it's sort of what made them so much better than they were in 2020. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting hearing, you know, Jen mentioned how sort of the idea of like talking about depth uh, was kind of like a buzzword, almost making fun of Heim Bloom and kind of the, the, you know, the project that he had undertaken when he took over the team. And uh, that's very familiar for me as someone who used to cover the Dodgers, uh, mm-hmm. who are run by one of Heimblum's mentors, Andrew Friedman. Um, it was the sort of thing that everyone kind of, you know, they'd make a move and it'd be like, they get kind of made fun of because like, oh yeah, there's stockpile in the depth, there's stockpile in the depth. And then all of a sudden they were, were the best like organization in baseball specifically because of that. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, is in Boston, you know, have they converted the faithful is everyone at the, you know, <laughs> star market talking about the marginal, you know, surplus value on the Flotty Man Rasta now. That's a good accent. I'm going to give you credit for that. That was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like, I think they're, you know, the comments and on our stories and sports talk radio in the beginning of the year are a lot different than they are now. You know, the beginning of the year was, you know, this is Tampa Bay North. They're not going to spend any money. You know, they're not getting anybody. Uh, you know, they're not going to, like Chad said, they're not getting any of these big name players. They they have the money. The Red Sox have the money. What are they doing? Um, you know, why did they bring in Heimblum? And and now people are starting to say like, oh, maybe this does work. Oh, maybe maybe this is the way that you, they should go. And, you know, I think we've tried to point throughout the season that, yeah, Heim's coming from Tampa Bay, but the re- the model really is the Dodgers. And just how, like you said, the depth that they have compiled over the years that really kind of have, you know, filled out the system so that, they can make kind of the big splash, you know, signings that make the the organization more sustainable in the wrong long run. And the Red Sox obviously have money and, you know, people want them to spend it, but I think they're trying to go about it in like a, a more Dodgers esque, like, you know, um, try to get the most out of all your money basically way. And, and adding all this depth around the edges, you know, you're, you're not going to just win with one superstar player. You, you get through 162 games with, the Red Sox, I think, had like almost 60 guys this year, which I think, you know, was close to, if not a franchise record for the number of players they used. So and obviously a lot had to do with COVID, but just, you know, kind of speaks to that theme, I think, of, you know, using all these different parts of the roster. And it's something they definitely didn't have like a year and a half ago, um, you know, the pitching depth, especially. Is there like a, a little move in there that typifies what what it is they've been trying to do? 
like one one player acquisition who stands out or just one who immediately comes to mind when that sort of explains like what Heimbloom has been doing? Well, I mean, in some ways, I mean, a little bit, maybe Hunter Renfro fits a little bit in that mm. it's sort of a guy who's a, a guy who they kind of were just betting on. He's a guy who could help them short term, right? But it wasn't a long term investment and they believed there was upside. And I think that's something they've done with everything with Garrett Richards, with Kike, with they, they haven't invested, they haven't locked themselves in to anyone really over a, over a long period of time. But it seems like every move they've made is, is a player with short-term potential to be better than people expect. But with, in the case of Renfro, there's additional years of arbitration with him. So if it does work, you're also buying into something with the future. You know, I've almost, I think other than Kike on a two-year deal, I think, almost every other free agent they signed came with either years of arbitration left or a team option. So everything he does comes with this sense of the future. I also think you could go, go back to 2020 when he was, when Heim was claiming a bunch of guys off waivers, right? And it's, it's small, it's, it's Jeffrey Springs and Matt Hall and all these like small moves. Well, then after last year, when it didn't work, he didn't just cut, like he's, he's trading even those guys. You know, like just marginal Chris Mazza and Jeff Springs to the Rays to get another catching prospect. Like there, there is, that's what Heim is, there is constantly this sense of what can I maximize here, even if it's something small that, that keeps me going and, and build something a little bit more sustainable in the future. And also in the meantime, gives this team a chance to succeed and a chance to contend. Um, in the short term while you're still waiting for those longer term projects to play out. And I think you can even, you know, can, you can put in the the Nick Pavetta trade there too. You know, they got Connor mm-hmm. Seagull, the prospect who everybody assumed, you know, that's the reason they made that trade, but obviously Pavetta has turned out pretty well for them. Um, and he's a guy that are, you know, in Philly, people were, you know, what, you know, he's, he's done, his career's done, you know, you didn't get anything for him, you know, when that trade happened in, in July, 20, August 20, July, 2020, obviously. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, a pretty remarkable, a kind of, yeah, turn of events that that's, that's come out of what Pavetta has been able to do. And you still haven't even really, you see, saw Seabold made one start and obviously there's, uh, you know, a, a lot more to come there, but, but just what Pavetta has been able to do and, Heim gave up, you know, the Red Sox gave up uh, Keith Hembry and Brandon Workman. So, I mean, those kind of moves, I think, are just, yeah, what, what Chad was saying just sort of has typified, you know, what what he's been able to do here. And I think that those are the kind of things that, like, we can point to when we're trying to explain, you know, how he's been able to build this team up. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you guys mentioned that there wasn't, like, one big, bold move this offseason. Uh, at least like on the roster, but you know, the decision to bring back Alex Cora, I think was one that was obviously controversial for a variety of reasons. If you've been, you know, living under a rock for the past three years and just uh, discovered, you know, the athletic we're a website, um, you know, we write about sports. Uh, also uh, Alex Cora was involved in the Astro scandal. Uh, it's a long story. Uh, you can call Evan Drellick at uh, 1-800-DRELLS and he'll just tell you what happened. Um, anyway, bringing back Cora, right? Like, you really do get a sense 
of what a manager can do for a baseball team. And this is not to slight Ron Renicki. Obviously, he's had success as a manager before. Uh, last year was a disaster. But it seems like the biggest difference in the 2021 Red Sox, at least from the outside, is that Alex Cora is managing them. I'm just curious, uh, you know, how you guys have seen that, you know, dynamic play out this year. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And it, and it also, I think there was some sense early on that it was almost like a given, right? Like they kind of, the Red Sox didn't really want to lose Alex in the first place. And so of course they were going to bring him back, but the X factor was Heim. Heim hadn't worked with Alex in 2018 and 2019. It was not a given that Cora was going to come back. And I think based on everyone Jen and I both have talked to, it was a, it was a process of those two figuring out whether they really were the, the right pair to work together. Heim in the front office and, and Alex being the guy on the bench. Um, but you're right. There is, there's this intangible factor that, that Alex brings. I mean, it's, you can't question his baseball knowledge. You can't question his experience, his track record, all that stuff. But there's a, as you said, there's this outside thing with the, sign stealing and all of that, that puts something on him. And I think the way he's handled that and taking responsibility for it and talking about it openly and never, I mean, never shutting down a question about it. I've, I've, he has never had the moment of like, this is the one time I'm going to talk about this and we're never going to talk about it again. Like he gets it. This is a part of it now. And I think that, that sort of uh, accountability, I think goes, the, the players see that and his staff sees that and the front office sees that. And I think that, has an has an impact and he also just is a when he talks about optimism and best case scenarios and the way things can work out he means it these are not things that he's he, that just is his personality i mean he he sees things as he's an optimistic guy he's glass half full and that belief is there it's not a he's not a you know, he's not pounding tables in spring training and like, we're going to show them all that we're better. It's just, he just, there, there's no question about this for him. You know, when he, so when he tells him in spring training, we're going to play in October, it's not a, like have a chip on your shoulder and let's go prove them wrong. It's just, why wouldn't we play in October? Let's go do it. And, and I do think that that affects the team and it gives them something, you know, especially when they get into October and he starts really pushing them hard. Um, they're kind of ready for that and and they believe it's going to work. Yeah. And, you know, Jen, I think it was, you know, Joel Sherman from the New York post phrased this really well a couple of months ago. He's talking about how someone like Cora, like he feels the game in a way that is impactful. And it seems like at this time of year, especially when you have a pitching staff, like the Red Sox do, that's not going to be plug and play his sort of, you know, game planning, intuition, feel, all become really magnified. I'm curious how, how you saw that play out in this first round. Yeah, you know, he's been, and we shouldn't have been surprised because we saw in 2018, but just immensely aggressive, you know, in, in the way he's managed his team and kind of going off of what Chad said, just he has this, uh, I guess, a good and bad thing, this internal confidence that like the moves that, you know, he's very convicted in what he's going to do. And, you know, this, I'm, I'm going to pull, you know, Tanner Houck from a perfect game, the final, final weekend of the season and the games we absolutely need to win to get into the playoffs. And everybody's like, what the hell are you doing? And he had, you know, him and, and Dave Bush, the pitching coach had the, the, you know, the bullpen mapped out and it works and, you know, it could easily go the other way and it doesn't work, but it, it has, and he hasn't made a mistake yet. And it hasn't made an egregious mistake yet. 
And it's just remarkable to watch, you know, someone make these moves that can be questioned so, like so many times over and that he just doesn't seem to, you know, flinch. He just is, you know, this is, this is how I'm going to do it. And, uh, and, and be super aggressive and, you know, not, not let his pitchers keep getting deep in games, even though the bullpen doesn't seem like it's, you know, a playoff bullpen, but he's been getting the most out of these guys. I think maybe because he's been using them in these like sort of shorter stints and just knowing when to plug and play guys. And it's just this big chess game. And like you said, he has this great feel and sort of like intuition for what's going to, you know, play, play out the best way. And obviously it's not going to work every single time, but they're here in the ALCS for a reason, because for a large majority of the time, these moves have worked and it's, you know, we've want, we've, you know, wanted to second guess them so many times and they keep, they keep working. And so, yeah, just that feel for the game, you know, having, there are so many managers that have played the game and, you know, that are player managers and, you know, that kind of thing, but it's just, there's something yeah with him that uh, the way he manages and the way that he kind of gets to his players um, it just is all this kind of uh, it all it's all come together pretty pretty well for them and obviously they're gonna have their hands full against play in the LCS but the way that he's been able to get here um, with some of these you know pushing the right buttons um, you obviously have to give him a lot of credit yeah I've always found that like, in the postseason, the sort of reflexive criticism of managers is like, oh, this game was scripted. You know, they're just following a script. And it's like, I've always found that to just be so stupid because it's like, yeah, we want to plan for what's going to happen. Right. What? Uh, but the idea, I think, is to blend having a plan and using your eyes and find in the middle. And it's not easy to do. I mean, I think anyone who's been around Kevin Cash thinks he's a very, very good manager. And he made a move that I think everyone was like, what the, what are you doing last year? You know, um, you know, Dave Roberts is, you know, dealt with this criticism over the years, but I think Cora uh, seems to have that blend down as, as well as anyone in the sport. Well, yeah. and, and it's scripted, but he didn't script it for Eduardo Rodriguez to get five outs in game one. He didn't script right. it to have to pull Chris Sale after a grand slam in the first inning in game two. So yes, he's, he's prepared for certain scenarios and it's not so much a script as it is a, a set of plans. It's the, he knows where he wants certain pitchers at which points in the lineup. He, and so he's just ready for multiple things. And when he got that aggressive in games one and two, you know, you go into this series against the Rays, but in my mind, the Rays' greatest strength, where they're clearly so much better than the Red Sox, is their pitching depth, yeah. right? They have so many guys. And so when Cora starts the series by pulling his starters that early in game one and game two and, like, trying to out-depth the Rays, I'm like, what are you – like, this is not the way you're built. Yeah. This You can't do this. Yeah. But it's almost like he's looking at it more like, well, th this is what we have to do. Like this has to work. The other thing's not working. So this is the way, and I'm prepared for it in this way. Here's who I have lined up for this one. Here's my contingency plan for this one. And, and that's where I think the feel comes in. It is both an analysis of his players and his opposition and going, here's where we match up well, and here's the way I can use guys. And then also the feel for the moment to know when do you go with plan A and when do you switch to plan B and when do you switch to plan C so he's, he's got plans A, B, C, D, E, F, G all laid out. And then the feel is 
knowing which one of those plans to go to at which time. Yeah, Jen, was that what you saw basically, or is Chad just, you know, full of beans as usual? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. It just, yeah, yeah the, um, yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, so, Kike Hernandez, uh, I covered him in Los Angeles, uh, and his sort of central dilemma every single year was he wanted to play more, and he played on a team that was capable of platooning him. Um, he, it was one of the reasons I think he was so willing to leave Los Angeles and free agency. Also the Dodgers, you know, decided they would be better just holstering their money to spend on Trevor Bauer. Um, and, you know, Hernandez wanted to play as an everyday player and he's been given that opportunity in Boston and he's really flourished, but it's not like he never had that chance in LA. There were stretches where they tried to let him play every day and he just did not hit enough to justify it uh, specifically against righties. And so, you know, I'm curious, Jen, like what is it that he has unlocked this year that has made him, you know, not just the force that he was, um, you know, in the, in the DS, but he's in some ways he's been there, you know, maybe their best player. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think maybe part of it is just kind of coming to a new team and knowing that, you know, you're going to have a starting spot regardless, you know, not maybe not trying to like fight or prove that to the Dodgers that you can earn the starting spot. I think, you know, he he's known Cora since he was a little kid, you know, growing up in Puerto Rico with their dads or his dad knew knew Cora. And um, I think kind of having that pre uh, pre-existing relationship, um, you know, gave him a lot of, you know, confidence and knowing that he was going to be able to make this work somehow and was going to have a starting spot regardless. And, you know, in the spring training, we thought he was going to be playing more second base mm-hmm. and he, he really solidified the outfield there and took over center field and became a really solid defensive center fielder. Um, so I think it just more maybe was something that, you know, the and in the beginning of the season it was a little bit you know of a struggle for him there were some you know ups and downs he really didn't take he got removed from the leadoff spot at the end of June and kind of um Cora like benched him for a couple games in like Atlanta and and Kike talked about kind of that being his reset button of like I gotta get this back together and from like June 29th on hit like 300 with like a like a 900 OPS and so he I think maybe just sort of knowing that that spot was there and being there every day and just sort of, you know, playing into the role instead of trying to prove himself maybe was something that allowed him to kind of reach the full potential. You know, Cora talked about like knowing that he could do this. He just hadn't done it yet. Um, And maybe it speaks again to that thing we were just talking about with Cora kind of instilling confidence in guys and, you know, just, saying this is how it's going to be. And, and he kind of just figures it out on his own. I don't know. It's yeah. I'm not sure if there's like one thing you can point to, but it obviously has worked out for him here. And he's, he's been, like you said, a huge part of this lineup. And, you know, they obviously wouldn't be here without him, especially, you know, what he was able to do from July 1st on. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because he, hadn't ever really been able to put it together over so many years previously. Um, and then, you know, a, a change of teams and, and here he goes and he's kind of, you know, the star of the ALDS. Yeah. It's, you know, 
it's interesting because there's sort of the argument of like competition's always a good thing, you know, iron sharpens iron, whatever they say in like jujitsu gyms and stuff like that. Um, but like some Dodgers players, like guys, the more marginal guys would talk about this idea. Like if I don't have a good start or if I have a a rough week, I know someone else is going to take my spot and that can sort of get in their heads. And maybe for Kike, you know, there is just some comfort knowing like, look, I can OPS 700 against righties. As long as I'm doing what I do against lefties, they're going to keep playing me and, you know, he'll find a rhythm and he's clearly, I mean, just taken off and, you know, been really, really effective. Um, At the deadline, the team acquired Kyle Schwarber, uh, who just looks like he should be the most popular man in Boston. Uh, how is that going so far, Chad? <laughs> he, I mean, it seemed, it was a weird move, right? I mean, of all the things, yeah. the, the thing they needed was a left-handed first baseman, and they went and got a, basically another DH and another left fielder, which they didn't need at all, um, you know, when Anthony Rizzo's out there. Um, that It just felt like there were so many more obvious fits, but they prioritized the bat and they really felt like, I mean, I remember talking to so many people at the deadline after and afterward that that was the, they felt like they got one of the best hitters available and it, and it played out that way. And then they'll figure out where to use him. And, and they also are so big on that mix and match thing. You know, can you figure out the right, what person to plug in here? So they're playing Schwarber at DH They're playing him in left. They play him at first. Um, and yeah, it's worked really well. And he's, he's added an element too of uh, there's a, his approach to things and the way he handles talking to other players, the way he handles at bats and then can talk teammates through what he saw in that at bat. Um, I think those things have been contagious too. I mean, he's another thing to, to think about is that they have as much as Heim maybe seems like a pure numbers guy. Hunter Renfro was in the world series last year. Kike Hernandez was in the World Series last year. Kyle Schwarber has a track record in the playoffs with the Cubs. They they gotten guys with that sort of uh, there's a there's an experience level and a just a comfort in big spots that they have. It seems like they very clearly targeted in building this roster that maybe plays into some of what we were talking about earlier with Alex, where he's there's a, a trust and a confidence there, and then you add in guys who have done it before, and I. I do think that ends up having an impact uh, beyond just, you know, Schwarber's at-bats, but I think it's, it's had an impact, you know, on down the roster. I mean, Bobby Dahlbeck is a better hitter today because he spent the past two months working with, with Kyle Schwarber. Is it, uh, Jen, is it true that when Evaldi, Nate Evaldi was pitching so well in the wildcard game and then again in the DS that um, Dave Dombrowski flew a plane over Fenway with a sign that said, I was right? You know, I didn't see it, but I might have been typing. So, um, yeah, I can't, I can't confirm or deny that one. I thought I saw that. I thought yeah. I saw that. So, <laughs> Ivaldi is the number one, it seems like, of this rotation. As they stare down the barrel of playing the Astros, the best offense in the sport, the scariest offense in the sport, how does the pitching shape up, Jen? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be their toughest their toughest test. The Astros, you know, were probably the toughest team they faced all season and just sort of dominated them, you know, in, in every facet. Um, they played them again, though, in, in, uh, it was like end, middle May, end of May. Um, and so it is going to be interesting to see that version of the Red Sox versus this version of the Red Sox. Um, 
I'm they played them, I think, within a, like a week span. There was maybe one series in between, but that was they were like home and road and one series in between. So that was that was the taste they got of the Astros. Obviously, the Astros are probably a different team, you know, from that point too. Um, but the Astros kind of like handed. I think they went. The Red Sox went two and five in those seven games, and it, it the five losses were were not uh, were not super great. So I think um, you know. I don't know. It's 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 going to be an interesting series um, to see how they match up. And if you know, I imagine Core is going to keep sticking with the way that he's he's gotten here and these shorter starts and sort of plugging and playing guys and um, you know trying to make be one step ahead and you know trying to trying to think ahead to, to you know who's going to be matching up and what and where and you know not letting guys go too deep and and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean they're this deep and it's going to only get harder. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, Evaldi, like you said, is your number one guy, but is Eduardo going to come back out and do what he did? Is, um, is Nick Pavetta going to play a role? What do you do with Chris Sale? Like, is he going to start or is he going to stay in the bullpen? Um, these are all things we're going to have to be, you know, figuring out in the next couple of days and obviously something they're talking about probably right now. Chad, what do you do with Chris Sale? I mean, you know, when he came back from Tommy John, he, he, he looked pretty good for a while. And then he yeah. seemed to kind of lose things a little bit. I mean, command's been different. The changeup hasn't been there. Um, but I also am not sure your best bet might occasionally be rolling the dice that Chris Sale becomes Chris Sale again, right? I mean, they're, they're, he's such a – the upside to him is still so significant. Um, but I wonder if, if – you could kind of do what you did in what they did in game two of the division series, which is you had sales start and, but very quickly ready and willing to switch to Tanner Houck. I mean, it's Houck is in a lot of ways, he's been compared to sale from the right side. Just they, they, they look very similar when they pitch the, the, their mechanics look similar. And, and Houck's also, you know, mostly a fastball slider guy, you know, coming from kind of a little bit over on the side and, so maybe there's some, maybe there's a way to do that where you kind of try to keep those two together where you can, if you need to bail on sale, you have Hulk ready to, to back him up and get you through the rest of it. That might, to me, that was a combination that worked well um, in game two. I mean, it was, it gave him an, a kind of an, an ejector seat there. He could, he could, he could bail on, on sale and have a guy ready. Um, but yeah, that's, that's to me, that's one of the bigger mysteries for this team going forward. It, they talked, they've talked all year about, they felt like if they could just sort of weather the storm until sale came back after the trade, after the all-star break, they'd be all right. And that kind of worked for a little while. And now I think they're back to having no idea what sales going to give them from day to day. One last question for, for both before we, before we wrap up, um, what is the perspective in the city, uh, in the greater Boston area, wherever the Patriots play, um, Connecticut, New Hampshire, possibly even Portland, Maine. What is the perspective on the on the Mookie Betts trade? Oh, uh, I think you know. Remember that they traded him. He was a really good player. <laughs> on the Dodgers. I, I do remember that. Patriots yeah. wrote and asked like the popularity of the Red Sox versus the Patriots. But so anyway, I'll change my thought process there. Um, you know, I think there is a faction of the fan base that sort of sees why the Red Sox did it um, and wanted to have that. You know flexibility for the future and you know didn't know if if uh, if Mookie was going to end up signing here long term it did seem like he wanted to head into free agency to sort of set the market for players of his caliber that was something he said 
several times here. Um, and so, yeah, I think some people, some fans were understanding of the fact that maybe you have to get something for him before he, you know, ends up walking away. Um, I think a, still a large majority of people are angry, frustrated, uh, sad, disappointed that, you know, the bets trade went down the way it did and, and that it, you know, obviously with adding price in and kind of the, the salary dump, you know, if you will, perspe- or, you know, um, the way that it looked, um, especially if, like we said, for a team that has a $200 million payroll, it was, uh, it was a pretty brutal look. Um, and I think I'm curious to see the fans that left said they were leaving and never watching the Red Sox ever again because of that if they've started to come around and sort of see like this was a painful move, but in, in Heim and Bloom, Heim Bloom has said it was painful, you know, and, and not something that he did easily have started to come around and, and see, you know, maybe this was the way to go. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. And I still don't know exactly if, you know, it was the right thing to do, but you do see where things are right now and kind of they're headed in the right direction. The Red Sox as a whole are, um, so maybe this plan was, was what it should have been. And it was just, it had, a, you kind of had to rip the bandaid off at some point. I still think a large majority of fans, if they could have Mookie Betts still be here. Um, and obviously he would have already hit free agency at this point, but, uh, they'd still, they'd still want him here. Well, we've heard from, say- we've heard from Jen and she says, <laughs> don't pay the players and MLB needs a salary cap. What do you think, Jen? That is exactly what I heard. And, uh, I think that <laughs> I look forward to her column. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't that be I, the, so funny if you wrote a column that just was like McCullough? I side with the owners. <laughs> you just get yelled at for weeks. Yeah. Anyway, well, the only thing I would add is that one thing Heim said in spring training was it, t- talking about you know a year after trading Mookie Betts that the he pointed out that the Dodgers were able to make that trade precisely because they'd done all the things leading up to it to make themselves sustainable. Yeah. So he, and so I think that's where people will maybe, I don't know if you say forgive him for trading Mookie or whatever, but if the plan works and he does get to where he's got a, where he feels that the system, the organization is sustainable enough that at some point he can be the one making the Mookie trade from the other end, right? If he's built it up to what he wants and then when the time is right, without sacrificing everything, he can make that kind of move, whether it's, you know, putting money on a free agent or, or having enough prospects that you can trade three of them to get one of the 10 best players in the sport. Then I think you go, okay, now what, now that's when the plan has played out. Right. And you see how the whole thing works. It's until now, I mean, Mookie's still Mookie, right? He's a, he's an elite yeah. player who's playing somewhere else. And, uh, and that's never going to be particularly easy to swallow. But I think in the if there if if it reaches a point where because I think the concern is right that Heim's always going to do this that he's always going to be the guy who sells and he's never going to spend. He says that's not the case that he wants to build where he can comfortably make those sort of big moves and put the power of the Red Sox to work. Right? If he gets to that point and starts making those moves the other way as well, then I think it's to the point of you know, maybe kind of all is forgiven because it's, you can see the bigger picture of what it is he's going for. There is that small faction of the fan base that sort of sees that side of things. I, 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 but I think like the large majority don't see it that way yet because like Chad was saying, they feel like this is how it's always going to be. He's never gonna, he's always going to be, is he, what's he going to do at Raphael Devers, you know, who 
should be getting a big mm-hmm. extension right now, but are they not even going to do that because of what they did with bets? I think that's right. people are worried about that. And I think until, like Chad said, he can build out this team to be or this organization to be that much more sustainable. I think people are going to be, you know, worried that this is what it's going to be from here on out. Well, it's so it's so counterintuitive to try and sell to people like, look, if we do this move one day, we can acquire a player like Mookie Betts. And <laughs> right, fans right. are like, right. But what if you just kept yeah. Mookie Betts? You know, like and so I, I certainly understand it from the public's perspective. And uh, I think that, you know, the way that teams have been built, like the Dodgers are an example um, you know, the way that like rebuilds have gone in Milwaukee or San Francisco or example, that like this idea of flexibility, you know, does sort of work. It's just not fun per se. And that gets into the greater question of like, what do teams owe their fans? Do they, should they be trying to put out a competitive product? Should they be trying mm-hmm. to, um, you know, establish like, uh, long-term relationships between the players and the public, you know, whatever. And like, sometimes those, those, those pursuits align and sometimes, you know, they're in conflict. And I think the Red Sox in recent years are, are a great example of them, but like if they're going to be able to sustainably win, you know, 92 to 95, maybe even more games in the future and contend every year, like I think fans will probably go for that, um, you know, but we'll see. I don't know. I think if the argument is that a team like the Red Sox should never have to give up on a player like Mookie Betts, I think that's a perfectly viable argument. And that that is not wrong, but it's also a matter of how do you want to when Heim comes in and he's trying to set the deck the way he wants, right? And and so there, that was I think part of his sort of reset process is yeah I I would love to be in a position to give Mookie whatever he wants and sign him to the extension, but if you're not set up for that yet, I think the hope would be that at some point they get to the point where you can follow that edict and say yeah we're we're not going to be the organization that loses Mookie Betts. Right. Well, uh, thank you guys both, Jen and Chad, for joining me today. Uh, and thank you all for listening. This has been really fun. We're going to keep doing this every Wednesday uh, during the postseason. If the Red Sox keep advancing, then uh, maybe you guys can come back. Um, you can oh, download. God. Yeah, I know. It would be fun, wouldn't it? I, I, I guess. Wouldn't you guys like to debate Jake Kaplan about baseball? <laughs> Jake would have to have seven cups of coffee to keep up with you both. Um, You can download the Athletic Baseball Show episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next week.